Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Matthew Barker. Welcome. Hello. Good good, good day. Good, yes, good afternoon now. Um, good afternoon, yes. <laughs> I'm so happy to be speaking to you. You are coming to us from New South Wales, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm in um, Bondi. Just um, a couple hundred metres down from the beach where it's lovely today. I absolutely love Bondi. I love uh, – the last time I was there I stayed in North Bondi, like on the top of that hill um, on that side of yeah. the beach. It is absolutely stunning. I'm, oh God, I want to live it's there. beautiful. <laughs> up there you've got a beautiful view down the coast. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Um, oh. But I am really thrilled to have you here. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, yeah, so look, have you said, my name's Matt Barker and, um, um, you know, I'm Sydney born and bred. I um, was raised in the, the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, you know, I suppose I work, I work full time, um, work for myself, mostly doing contract work. Um, and, um, you know, over the last um, five, six, six years now, I guess, I've been um, dealing with um, legal proceedings to do with um, abuse when I was uh, from when I was a, a child. Um, do, you, do you want me to tell you a bit about? Yeah, if you feel there? comfortable, if you want to go back into yeah where that kind of started for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when I was um, young, me um, and my my older brothers, we were all members of our local um, scout troop. You know, joining when you you're a cub, when you're I think around eight years old or something, and then at the age of eleven, you generally at the age of eleven you transition into the scouts division of the group, um, which which I did, um, and not long after transitioning into becoming a scout at, at eleven years old, um, my uh, one of my scout leaders had offered to um, help me on a Saturday work towards some awards, you know, you work different awards you can earn in scouts. Um, and um, he uh, picked me up on a, on a Saturday morning to go and do that work. Um, but after he picked me up, he took me back to the caravan where he lived um, at the time. He lived in a caravan on a on a on a um, back block um, in Westmead, and um, when we got there, um, instead of working on scout awards, we um, he sat us on his 
double bed in his caravan and we started watching TV. I remember Hey Hey It Saturday was on. Um, and um, very quickly things progressed and he started sexually abusing me. Um, and that day was to be the first of many, many, many times over the next, over a period of then three years, um, that there was, um, yeah, regular sexual abuse in different places at Scout Hall, in his car, um, on scouting events, to and from scouting events where he'd pick me up and take me to them. Um, so, um, so that went on for a long time. Um, and from the ages between from 11 till I was somewhere when I was 13. Um, and then, uh, when the, um, I mean, I, I look, there's, you know, all sorts of issues that I've dealt with over the years. Um, but it wasn't until about eight or nine years ago that I finally went to see a psychologist specifically to deal with, with that issue, to talk directly about. Um, the abuse, and through that process, I ended up um, making a report to the Royal Commission, which was ongoing at that time. And from the Royal Commission, they forwarded my report with my permission to the New South Wales Police. Um, the New South Wales Police then started an investigation um, that, you know, they then handed that over to the Department of Public Prosecutions, um, who then laid the charges. Um, and then after an investigation of two and a half years, uh, the, um, the charges were laid and um, the perpetrator was arrested. And then um, some six months later, we ended up in court. Um, I was fortunate that um, the perpetrator in my case pled guilty to all the charges uh, and to the charges related to not just me but three other scouts from the, the same scout group um, who I was able to get in contact with because um, I knew that it happened. Um, and so he was sentenced um, for those crimes in 2020 and then um, around the same time I, was, I started um, legal action against scouts New South Wales um, and um, that's ongoing. Um, the, the the action against South Scouts New South Wales has been much less straightforward. Um, unfortunately, despite acknowledging that that the that the crimes have happened, um, they have argued that they can't um, receive a fair trial because of the passage of time. Um, and they've applied for and been given by the Supreme Court of New South Wales a permanent stay of proceedings, which basically means the whole case is set aside um, despite there being a perpetrator who's alive and willing to give evidence. And um, so the current status is that, you know, I'm um, in the process of lodging an appeal um, against that judgment so, um, and I'm, you know, I've had very good advice and I'm very confident about that. But, yeah, it just means that, you know, the, it's, it's a long, um, the, 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 um, the process is, is long, um, stressful um, and, uh, you know, it's still got a, a little while to run yet. So that's sort of like the, you know, yeah. the whole Thank story for, in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And it's, it's a lot like to to think about for one person as well and it sounds like where you're at now is something that you specifically are spearheading um you know when you go up against an organization like this one of the things that frustrates me so much and this is the great thing i think about crowdsourcing and you know getting all people involved with assisting us um is that it shouldn't have to be led by victims of crime to change the way that organizations work um but it can be very very difficult on that sense so Anything we can do to help you with that, and I know that we'll probably get into that a little bit later, we'll definitely yeah. talk about because it's really important that we do that. Um, one of the things, like that, the, the Reclaim Me uh, army of listeners are really wonderful at doing is coming together and actioning uh, where we possibly can. So there's that. But I, I kind of wanted to go back, like when you said 
you know, and you were sharing your story, if you don't mind, if there's a few questions I had when you started to talk, like, especially around the beginning, like that this guy would come in and pick you up from your house on like a Saturday morning, mm-hmm. was that like a normalized thing within the community back then? Like it wasn't seen as like, what was his um, age? And was it just like, he's a, like a, almost like a coach kind of thing. Um, and that was a normalized behavior. I mean, I think, I think the the really central thing for me to, for, to understand about that situation is by virtue of the role of being a, a scout leader, that straight away the parents of the families, they, um, they imply so that, you know, they give a certain amount of trust because of that role. Mm. Um, and certainly I know at the time um, it was considered um, it, w- it, it regularly happened that, that um, you know, a scout leader might pick up a scout to take to an activity or to um, transport or um, it certainly wasn't unusual. Yeah, but, look, I just say it was. It was fairly, it was fairly standard for, um, for, for him to come around um, you know, when, you, when you're turning up at your door and in scout uniform and he's in uniform, then there is this, it really enforces this notion of, oh, well, I'm handing my child over to a sort of responsible adult who's fulfilling a role. Yeah, absolutely. And I really relate to that too. I was an elite gymnast for many years and my parents would drop me off at, I don't know, odd godly hours of the morning in the city. From So I lived in the suburbs and they would drop me in the city at 6am and the coaches had custody of me until 7 or 8pm that night. They would walk us to school. They would help us get ready. They would be there when we showered between like um, training sessions, going to school back and forth. And I totally understand that. I think that's something I want the listeners to, to hear. I think people, when they're listening, sometimes will have that overlay of their current thoughts or feelings. And maybe right now they wouldn't let an adult come to their house and take their child. But it's it's not even just about the time. I think it's about the institution. It's about, you know, the authority that somebody has. It, it is. and But even the other thing, like, so there was an awareness at the time that as much as possible you should always have two adults present whenever there's a kid, right? So there was, aware, there was an awareness that that should have been the case. But it was sort of like, oh, it's too hard to do and so on. But the other thing about perpetrators like this, and certainly what happened in my case, was that they target families where there might be a lot going on, you know. My my family, um, we'd recently had a new baby in the family. Um, I've, you know, had... Uh, Two, you know, two brothers and another sister, as well as the the baby, that were all at school and teenagers, and it, you know, it's a busy and chaotic sort of household at that time. And so, maybe the adults at that time, it's sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe not quite as much attention gets paid to what's going on, you know, um, in that environment. And I think perpetrators know that. They choose environments where their involvement is more likely to be seen as helpful and they they cultivate a persona in that family of a friend of the family and that that, that I'm here to be helpful, you know. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like, um, yeah, like it's grooming behaviour and it's not just grooming the child, it's grooming the family. We've seen that with... So many other cases as well. One that comes to mind yeah. is Michael Jackson, and you know, it was found not guilty, etc. But you ingrate they sometimes will ingratiate themselves within the family as a helper, yeah. um, and cultivate in inverted commas a relationship of sorts with the family and with the child, whether that be as a caregiver or a helper. Um, do you want to maybe talk about what your relationship in inverted commas because it's not a a voluntary sexual mm. relationship. I want to make that very clear. But mm. there is a connection with this person that you've had for a while as a as a leader and, 
you know, yeah. there was obviously the abuse that went on. What was that like to navigate? And I guess well, what was that like at the time, sorry, and what was that like to navigate going through it now? Yeah, look, th- this is a really um, important topic to me because I-, I think one of the things that people don't often appreciate fully is that it's not just about the the individual episodes of sexual contact. It's the entire relationship with that person that causes damage. So this was a person that I obviously looked up to as a scout leader. Um, he was, you know, a physically tall person and so there was, you know, he was... From, from my position as 11-year-old, he was um, tall, imposing, but he was also very fun and, um, you know, the, 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 the day-to-day interactions were one of someone who was caring and um, so this was a person that you liked and wanted them to like you. So that makes you very open to be abused, what happens when an abu- when the abuse starts is that in, 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 in a young mind and in my young mind where I don't yet have a model of what loving sexual relationships are, I was too young for that, I, I get developed this, this really um, broken, warped model of what a loving relationship entails. And the episodes of sexual abuse have their own psychological impacts and scars that it causes. In addition to that, the impact of having this really warped understanding of a, se- a good, healthy, loving sexual relationship is enormously damaging. And that's what's taken me decades to pick through um, and that I've seen relationships fail because of um, because of my fundamental misunderstanding about how those relationships should be. Um, and so I, I'm a little bit sometimes hesitant even with discussion of grooming because while I understand yeah, grooming, the grooming happens, like you said, to families and it prepares the way but it somehow, at one level, it fails to recognise that the grooming is, is really what it is. It's an overarching abusive relationship and, it's, and it, it's not just the individual episodes that are abusive. The entire relationship becomes deeply psychologically scarring in ways that take enormous insight and... Um, you know, hard work over lots of time to unpick and um, and and recover from. And what you said there, I think, is really paramount as well. It's you can't just put a model over this, like a grooming model, which has got like five stages and as a cycle of abuse, and say that this is how it's always going to be. Like the complexities, the nuances, the you know, the differences, the day to day, like, and how it's impacted you as an individual. These are all very separate things that can interlink, and there might be some connections to all of those things. It's not saying that grooming wasn't involved or that it didn't continue to prevail, but it sounds like what you went through kind of paramounts to, yeah, torture of somebody's kind of being. This is what you have been ingratiated in almost like a cult. And yeah, yeah. it's, you know, it's it's horrifying to hear and I, I, I'm so sorry for you and I'm sorry for you at that age as well to go through so much of that. When you think about, like, how much that's impacted you, do you think that's kind of one of the things that you and the reasons that you went to seek the help in the beginning? Like you said, you went to seek help later on? Yeah, I mean, it took me, I mean, I, I'd been to see a couple of psychologists over the years because of issues that I'd had and a psychiatrist. Um, uh, I'd been to one psychologist where I had directly said, hey, look, this happened and I and I want to talk about it. 
And that, that psychologist, for, for whatever reasons, they, they sort of pushed that aside. I think their modality of operating was a bit different. Um, but so really it wasn't then until um, in my mind I had sort of known, look, I, this is unfinished business I need to deal with. And, you know, I mean, the, the truth is that during my 20s, um, right up to my early 30s, I was, you know, my use of alcohol and drugs was so heavy that, you know, you know the issues were all just covered over, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it really wasn't until I managed to spend a lot more time sober that I started to become aware of um, anxiety and depression issues and it wasn't until I had seen the sort of long-term patterns repeating in relationships that I've sort of gone, you know, oh, okay, I can see there's a definite pattern in here in what happens within relationships. So it yeah. took a long time for me to really recognise what was going on. For a long time I minimised the impact of what had happened. So then when I did, when I, it really became clear to me that, that I need, you know, that there was stuff I needed to talk about, that's I, um, you know, I sought out therapists and, and found a therapist that's been very good that I've been working with for, um, you know, quite a few years now. Um, and that process has been really good. And, um, you know, and then the, the process of going through the, the, the criminal investigation, the criminal case, and now the... the um, the civil case for all of the frustration and um, you know anxiety that it brings, it was so necessary for me to do. You know, like like I think many people, many victim survivors, will have made the point that this crime is all about being robbed of your agency, um, and and you know in some really fundamental ways that became clearer and clearer to me how much my agency was taken from me and how that still impacted me. So all of the action that I take now from a psychological point viewpoint for me is taken to reassert my agency in this situation um, and... Uh, you know, there, there, there's more elements than that, but but absolutely, um, I, I was very fortunate. You know, through the the criminal case, as far as criminal cases go, I had a um, a pretty good experience. You know, because there was multiple victims, we were able to get a guilty plea, um, and I, and my dealings with the police were very good. And you know, I mean, I'm very aware that people's dealings with the police varies enormously. I'm very aware that people of um, different backgrounds and minority groups can get very poor treatment from the police. So, um, you know, I, I'm sort of always aware about that when I'm saying I was fortunate that I, I, I had um, good police involved and good people from the from the, the legal system. Um, so that that experience for me was 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 um, overwhelmingly psychologically positive. Um, I can't say the same for the civil experience. Absolutely. And I think some of the things that you've gone into there kind of talk to those, the different survival tactics that people utilise at the time that they're going through the abuse. So a lot of the questions that people will get from people who are ill-informed are victim-blaming questions. Why didn't you tell anybody? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't? Yeah. It's not about that. I think it's about, you know, and I would love to hear about what your experience was with that. But then you've also got after and how that impacts you as well. And that honestly is one of the reasons that I started this platform in the way that I have, because one of the things, like you said, that we all, in our difference of experiences, the spectrum of experiences, one thing that we've all lost is that agency. And I wanted to give people a chance to really reclaim that. And I think that's it's really powerful to hear you kind of say that and take that in your own way and that the criminal experience for you going down that path was an important one. For others, maybe not so much, and that's completely fine. But I guess as well, yeah, it just talks to the differences of the tactics, not only through survival of the abuse at the time, but mm. through the healing kind of process as well afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I'll come to the, to the at the time bit. 
But just 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 to follow up on that, yeah. So, like in my mind, um, for a couple of decades, I had this nagging, probably better to say gnawing, um, notion knowledge that I had unfinished business and that I needed to, and that I needed to deal with this. And so, the legal action for me. Part of me knew it had to happen, and for me, um, it was about as well as myself. Is that I know other victims from my case and others who, because of where they are at in their own, um, you know, their their own living circumstances, their own psychological state, they just would not have the. Um, they wouldn't have the resources, personal or otherwise, to go through this. While it's horrible, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of up for it. Um, and so I do sort of think if you feel like you're up for it, then it's good to do it. If you can do it, it's good to do it because you're not doing it just for, the, for yourself. And people have other, you know, people have told me, you know, I've had thank yous from other people in the same case because they wouldn't have done anything if, unless it acted. So, you know, I'm, it's not, I don't, there's lots of reasons to do things. Um, no one should feel they have to, but if you feel that you're a person who can do it, then there are lots of good reasons to do it. Absolutely. Um, just, you know, in terms of the, the coping at the time, like, yeah, that it, it is confusing like for me, you know, they talk about the fight, um, flight and freeze response and I didn't understand that, of course, when I was a kid and, and even for most of my adulthood I didn't really understand it. And, um, it, you know, now that I do understand it, it became very, very clear that my response was definitely the freeze response, you know, was you just you go physically still and almost shut down, you know, you sort of other than what you're forced to do. Um, and so when you don't understand that that what was going on, you do, you know, you can, you blame yourself for why didn't I do something in that situation? And it's not until, you know, I really understand that was what was going on. That was a deep seated survival mechanism kicking in um, of, a threatened child in an overwhelming situation that they were, um, you know, with someone of much greater physical power and status. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, you know, I had to realise that that was that response and um, but that, that does take a long time to... To, to realize that you know you were you were you were just a kid there wasn't anything else you could do and and one of the things you know one of the reasons that um I'm sort of quite happy to talk about what happened now is that you know I've got a very firm belief that no one should feel embarrassed for being a victim of victim of crime you know at any age but particularly when you're an 11 year old kid you know so, you know, and I, I'm very clear now that the fact of that abuse happening to me is not a source of shame for me and it's not a source of embarrass, embarrassment for me, you know. Um, it, it, that, that's a crime that happened that I was a victim of and, um, and uh, you know, I'll do what I can to get full justice for that. Um, but um, I'm not... And no one who's a victim of crime should feel shame or embarrassment about the fact that they were a victim of crime. Here, here. And I think that's so powerful because that was one of the biggest things for myself as well with having this moment when the Me Too movement happened where I was just like, why am I so embarrassed and ashamed about this? Why am I quiet about this? And then I just had this realisation in my mind as well like that if anybody judged me because I spoke out about the fact that I was sexually abused at 14 mm. by an adult man, then 
that's on them because the like you said the shame doesn't sit with me this shame sits with the perpetrators and offenders and i shouldn't none of us should have to feel that and i think one of the other powerful things that people can get from listening to this is other survivors coming to that realization but also we didn't always have that realization we're no. kind of you've got that internalized shame and guilt and then all of a sudden the switch flicks and you're just like you know what no it's not like that yeah it shouldn't and, be, and and also, and and that doesn't mean that everyone has to speak out about their experience. No, you, you know, whatever is right, different people will have completely different feelings about what they want to keep private and what they want to speak, and that's perfectly okay. But what would be great is if, regardless of whether you speak out or not, is if internally you do not feel embarrassment and shame about what happened to you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Absolutely. And, you know, on that, like the power of sharing um, is a dot point that I just made as we were speaking before about, you know, not everybody having to come forwards. Um, and one thing that I just kind of thought about as well was, you know, the power of journalism, the power of sharing different stories, whether we talk about specific cases or not, when you hear somebody come forward like you have and talking about scouts, it could, you know, maybe reach a listener that is, experiencing something similar or has had a history of something similar. And that's where I feel that kind of power of sharing comes from. And another, you know, example I think about in that is when uh, Nikki Weiss and C. Egan broke the story about Andrea Constant, who was the first person that uh, I think successfully laid charges against Bill Cosby, mm. who is allegedly not guilty. Um and I think that that kind of pulled on the thread of this, you know, sweater, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, to to kind of let other people know around that not only were they not the only one, but mm. that somebody had support and there was belief and that that was the kind of situation. Mm. How did it happen for you? Because you said that there were other people that you were aware of was that at the time or was that kind of later on you kind of were able to see different things? Like how did that all come together? Yeah, no, look, I I was aware of um, like 100% aware of at least two other boys um, being abused. One because one of them there was occasions where the both of us were abused together Um and the other one because he had told me on a on a scout camp 
Um, and then there are other boys where, <clears throat> without having first-hand knowledge, it was pretty obvious. Um, so, um, you know, and, and the perpetrator had since gone on and had been found guilty of other abuse offences in other scout groups and whatnot. Um, so um, when I made my police report, I got in contact. I searched out for a couple of people that I knew of um, and um, both agreed to join the, the same, um, make their, the complaints and they were joined in the same criminal investigation. <clears throat> um, so that's how that all happened. Um, and it was, you know, it was, as I say, you know, that's where people were sort of saying, yeah, look, I've been thinking about this for years as well, so I'm sort of glad you've got this ball rolling. And um, uh, so it's, you know, and, and people have a, a different response and a different, you know, a, the, the criminal case can have a different effect um, on people, but I think everyone was happy that at least we, we got our... Um, you know, a day in court and um, we got to see him sentenced and sent off to jail. And I think that's just really awesome as well that, you know, one of you was able to come and find the others and, and come to it together as a group, knowing that you'd support one another through that as well. It's really... And, I mean, and from a pure practical outcome sense, you know, these cases are very hard to win. Um, so... The, the benefit of having multiple um, victims in the same case is enormous in getting a conviction. So one of the things that you'd listed when, when we were talking before about, you know, doing this recording, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was the misunderstanding of survival tactics. And I know we've gone into a number of things that you've experienced. What was the misunderstanding kind of aspect of that that you wanted to talk about? I think it's that people's expectation of trauma and how it expresses itself, they expect to see people who are maybe um, obviously diminished in their capacity or that have some obvious emotional outward affectation of, of what's going on um, you know, I mean, in shorthand, they, they they expect to see someone who's a bit of a mess maybe, you know. Um, and I think that people use, and that might be true sometimes, um, but people use, learn a wide range of tactics to deal with trauma. You know, for me, that was compartmentalisation, you know, like, so I would go from a, a situation where I was being abused and in literally 10 minutes later I could be being dropped off back to my family home where all of a sudden I had to appear normal that nothing was happening. So I got very good at just locking all of those emotions down, putting them away and trying to continue on as normally as possible. And when you're doing that, for years, you, you get quite good at it, you know. It becomes, it becomes a skill. And to some degree, it's a skill that I've used throughout my life. Um, so, you know, I've managed to work and develop quite a successful work life. Um, and what people see is the me that is very competent, um, and productive because I'm able, I'm able to take all the anxiety issues and, and put them aside and compartmentalise them. So they see that's what they see. What they don't see is that that strategy, while it works for a time, it never works long term. It never works long term because bubbling away is the anxiety and the emotion that needs to get expressed. And so... For me, how that plays out is I will do a role and I can be working under a reasonable amount of pressure or um, and I'm able to do that for a period of time, but I'm aware constantly of anxiety building and building and building. And it'll get to the point, well, it would get to the point where it would trigger a depressive episode and I would, you know, um, 
and I have to deal with that. Whereas I became good over the last particularly 15 years at, at recognising it and so I shifted that with the way I work to do contract work so I can work for a year and then I can take six months, sometimes a year off because I'll know, I can, I'll get the sense of I can feel that I need to have downtime to let the other emotional stuff be expressed and it'll take three months then to sort of get back to level again and then I'll take more time before I decide, right, I'm ready to go back and work again. But so I, I think, you know, um, it's, it's very easy for people to misunderstand um, or they have certain expectations about what trauma looks like. And because individuals are so diverse, the skills that we develop to deal with things may not be obvious to people. Um, and, you know, um, I suppose you just never know what someone's going through and you never know what sort of skills someone's developed to deal with their own stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's not that uh, person that's constantly sobbing and crying in the corner and is, you know, uh, permanently disabled by what's happened. And it's not to say that it's not causing damage and that it's not bubbling below the surface, as you said. And I think that's so important and something that we need to educate the public and future juries about as well is that some people might not be crying up there. Some people have gotten to a stage where they're pissed off. Some people are are okay with saying it in a certain way that is doesn't fit the mould of the perfect victim that they foresee. Um, and that's a part of discussing this and why it's important as well is to educate that potential future jury. Is just amplify one point that you made then, yeah. you know, like when people expect to see emotion, when one of the things that you had to do as a child was constantly hide your emotion, you had to never come home crying. You need like that's what you get good at, not showing emotion. And one of the things I've had to work on over the last decade is learning how to comfortably express emotion. So, yeah, if someone, if they're looking at someone expecting to see emotion all the time, they can completely misunderstanding what that person has had to do to deal with their trauma, to feel safe at the time that they were experiencing that trauma and that for many people I'm sure an outcome is learning to hide your emotions. Or be busy all the time. A lot of people that have had hugely traumatic lives or have had horrible things happen are very successful. And I think one of the reasons is we dive directly into being busy all the time. And that's something a a few survivors and I have in common. Like like when you're constantly under pressure and you're constantly busy, you've got a constant ticking of things going on. It can be quite – it's the same almost sometimes I think as being – drunk or having drugs where you yeah. can it's yeah it's just popping a little stop gap in there where you're preventing yourself from getting to a certain point of of thinking and feeling yeah yeah no, no that's i mean that's right it's a it's another it's another um another tool to help um to help notice what's actually going on <laughs> yeah um And, yeah, I think I I totally feel that Um, and that's been something I've been working on as I've hit 30 now where I'm just kind of going, okay, maybe the trauma is affecting me. Maybe I'm misunderstanding my own experiences as well and hearing you kind of say that is really powerful to me personally as well. So thank you for sharing that. One of the other things we were going to discuss was um, you are in, as you said, in the the throes of a civil uh, case that's got a permanent stay. Um, we can't talk too much about that, obviously, because it's a current legal situation, but we were going to talk about widening those stays. Do you mind maybe talking about that a little bit and what you'd like to see happening? Yeah. Um, so, so look, I suppose what, what can be said generally is that, well, I mean, maybe first to give the context to anyone who doesn't understand, permanent stays are a tool that the courts have to um, stop a case proceeding 
if they feel that that trial cannot proceed fairly for some reason, um, any defendant needs to be able to get a fair trial. Um, so that's 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 one of the ways that, that actions courts can take is they can stop a trial because they think it can't be held fairly. Now, in in the area of sexual historical sexual abuse cases, over the past few years, these applications for permanent stays are being made more and more frequently by you know churches and 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 in my case scouts and other organisations as a way to avoid claims. There is a legitimate role for that process, but the concern now that many legal um, people have expressed to me and certainly that I've seen is that the circumstances that they're getting applied in are becoming broader um, and they really just have become a tactic for avoiding responsibility. For example, in my case, there's no, there's no argument about what happened um, and yet there has still been an application for a stay. There's two, there's two sort of prongs to, to combating this, 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 um, this tactic. Um, one's a short-term approach and one, one's a longer-term approach. The short-term approach is to appeal decisions that give broader application to that argument. Um, and so the judgment in my case, for example, many people have said to me, legal minds have said, yes, it does seem to be a broadening of the application. Um, so, um, you know, we've had strong advice that we should appeal it and, and I, I am going to appeal it. Um, so one approach is to keep appeals going because every time that a stay is given, it makes it less and less likely that victims of historical abuse will ever get their case to court. And every time um, a stay is overturned or not given, it makes it more and more possible for victims to get their cases to court. So um, I want to see in the short term certainly my case appeal and I want to get that overturned um, because if my case is not overturned, it will absolutely have a detrimental impact on many current cases. And then the long-term solution is to get legislative change where our legislators, so where I'm in New South Wales, the New South Wales Parliament can pass laws to restrict the circumstances in which permanent stays can be used, specifically in relation to historical um, sexual abuse cases. And as a result of the Royal Commission, the, our legislators removed the time bar on historical sexual abuse cases because they recognised through the advice of the Royal Commission that for a whole array of reasons, these complaints are often not brought till many, many, many years after the crimes. Um, I think the average is 22 years or something like that. Yeah. And so they said, all right, we can't block these at seven years or whatever the time bar used to be. So they removed that. So that was a great thing to do. But now this growing use of permanent stays is undermining that. And some lawyers have even commented that it's actually harder now than before the Royal Commission. So the intent of many politicians in passing those laws was to improve access for victims and survivors to the legal system and to, to be able to get their cases to court. Unfortunately, at the moment, we're going backwards. As I say, there's two, two approaches to that. One is to um, appeal decisions that broaden the use of them so we can, through the appeal process, we can hopefully limit how often those that tactic can be used. And the second is it takes a bit longer to um, lobby and work with politicians to bring in legislation to re reduce um, the use of those stay applications. And, um, you know, I'm getting involved in doing both of those things. Um, of course, the legal process is incredibly, carries enormous financial risk with it. Um, you know, so, I, you know, I've started up my crowdfunding campaign to, to help um, manage that financial risk and I've been sort of 
pretty overwhelmed with the amount of support that we've got to date. If we still need some more support for sure, but so far it's 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 been um, it's been amazing, and um, you know I, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll be lodging my appeal um, very soon. One of the things that I don't fully understand is why it wouldn't be fair to be heard. Like why after this passage of time would it not be fair for an organisation like the Scouts? Like what what are the reasons that they can cite that mean that they don't? Well, the, the, the arguments that they make are that due to the passage of time that some evidence that they would rely on to defend themselves is no longer available or witnesses that they might rely on to defend themselves are no longer available. They say because of that they can't get a fair trial. Obviously we refute that and that's what our case is all about. Um, you know, but that's really as much as as much as you can, we, well, I can say about that while the the case is ongoing. It's just an interesting thing, I think that as well, because it's the opposite of what barriers kind of you know the inverse of what barriers are for victim survivors coming forward in the first place. But it is also something that I find very funny because it's you can still say against a piece of evidence that you don't have anybody available or that there is no countering evidence that doesn't necessarily always mean that it is going to be taken as true you can say that like courts are not completely you know lack of what's the right word common sense where they can apply common sense and say of course the person that was there at the time is now deceased we can't get that information from them they can logically make inferences from that um but yeah i mean it just it's it's a very interesting argument it's it's kind of a little bit it's a little bit um, offensive considering that it is one of the biggest barriers to why victims weren't believed that now it's the biggest barrier to why they can't get their information yeah. going through. Oh, look, and it is, it certainly, um, it doesn't align at all with um, the intentions of the responses the responses to the, to the Royal Commission. Um, and, you know, exactly the sort of things that you're talking about is exactly what lots of the legal minds are arguing about, you know. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll be able to not only support you in any of that change, so anybody here, um, if anybody here can support, how can they support in that short-term and long-term kind of goal that you've described there? Well, look, certainly certainly um, short-term, um you can go to uh, the website, the campaign website, which is mattvscouts.com.au. Or is it Matt, Matt V Scouts, New South Wales? I should know that one. Off by <laughs> That's okay. What we'll do is we'll link it in the show notes of this episode okay. and I'll be posting it on all the socials. All right. I got it right, mattvscouts.com.au. Beautiful. Um, so certainly um, that um, go there, has all the details of how you can help, um, that's, which, is, which is great. Um, and in terms of the long-term solution, uh, certainly in the short term you can contact your local MP or um, contact, and this, this issue exists in every state, so also your state attorney general um, or your local MP um, and tell them that you're aware of the, the use of stays being used more often and that something should be done about it. Um, but in the near in the near future, um, we will have some more exact detail about some proposed legislation. Uh, and at that time, um, you know, by my the websites will certainly be sharing how people can support um, the campaign to get that sort of legislation enacted. Beautiful. And usually it's through signatures. So it's, you know, requesting a change, getting a certain amount of signatures, gets it brought into the parliament so that it can be debated. So what we can do and um, is we'll keep everybody up to date with all of those changes. might be beneficial for us to draft a very brief template that you can utilise if you want to send that to your state attorney general or your local MPs to raise the issue. I don't think any of us want this to be used as yet another tactic that is stopping people who have experienced sexual violence to be um, blocked from getting any form of justice, whether that be criminal or civil. 
um, in any capacity. Um, and there is also the fundraising that you're doing as well. And I'll make sure that there's all of the links to that through all of the social medias and in the show notes of this episode. So if anybody has the capacity to donate or, you know, donate a cup of coffee worth, uh, that yeah. would be amazing. Cool. Any any donations are super appreciated, um, as is uh, any sharing on social medias. Um, you know, we the, the um the this is um, not you know all about getting big donations. Of we've had thousands of small donations, and it's all adding up. And you know, it's really it it gives me um, not just the financial confidence to move forward. But it also provides me with enormous psychological support just knowing that there are so many people on my side and so many people that, um, you know, are really supportive of what I'm doing. Absolutely. And this may set the pretense if we are, we're able to get behind this, set the pretense of changing, you know, the there are comes from many other cases and many other people. So it is, you know, one of those cases that can bring about a lot of change and we're hoping that that's what the outcome will be. Um, that's, a, that's a really important point, actually, because this is such a new and developing area of law. Every case at the moment sets important precedent for how other cases will be judged. Um, so the outcomes in, in in my case, because it is a broader application as well, um, really will have um, big impacts for, for for other people seeking justice. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's a super important, it's a super super important one to appeal. Absolutely, and I think um, you know it's just it's not saying that if it was just supporting you that it wouldn't be valid, but it's saying the importance of this specific one is because of that as well. It's yeah. it's that it's the wider application, it's the future information, and to see kind of the outcomes and the recommendations of some of the outcomes of that Royal Commission be implemented and then, and then the flow-on effects not be um, foreseen. Um, but, I mean, people are going to try and fight this no matter what we do and we've got to always be prepared to kind of fight back and, you yeah, know, many we, hands we, make light work. Yeah, look, we, we really do and it, it's interesting, like, so I have had a, a positive response from um, a number of politicians from from multiple different parties that I've that I've spoken with, um, but at the same time, I know there are big and powerful lobbies from other organisations um, that are, have a much stronger um, channel into politicians' ears than I do. So we certainly do have to um, fight and fight together as much as possible. And, you know, I'm just so grateful for you coming on and speaking to your experience. I think to be able to talk to not only what had happened, but some of those misconceptions that many people in the public hold and share. And I think that's, you know, I sign off kind of every episode by saying you might not be a survivor, but you sure as hell know one. And the way that I, the reason that I say it like that is because you might have somebody in your life that even if you've been vocal about this stuff has never shared their experiences with you. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we don't misconstrue their, you know, behaviors, whatever they might be, whether that be drinking, whether that be working lots, whether that be mm-hmm. acting completely fine, maybe they are completely fine. It doesn't mean that they're not somebody's also experienced this. And I think that's just such a powerful kind of thing to remember is we all, behave and react differently to the experiences that we've had. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, that's certainly been borne out in, you know, some of the people who have, um, that I've known for a long time since I, my story has been sort of in the public domain, um, who have, you know, let me know and said, yeah, look, I'm also a survivor. And, you know, and so I'm constantly also having that reminder, oh, you just you never know you never know what's going on for people and i so agree with you whenever you get tempted to judge someone else's behavior you just need to remind yourself that you never know what's got into that person's the makeup of how they respond and how they behave and um yeah yeah we can do it's good for us all to remember that look one of the positive things about going um, public with this with with my sort of story um, has been look the overwhelming positive response that I've had from people 
Um, and I was very nervous. I was quite nervous about particularly my work, you know, work colleagues, but, you know, my, the response has been really positive. Um, and it's great. And also getting to meet other people. Um, and I, I did want to do a call out as well to um, another survivor who's who's doing great work, Harrison uh, James. And um, I, I got to, I caught up with him down at the beach here a couple of weeks ago. We had a coffee and a chat and he's just doing great work and his campaign, the Your Reference Ain't Relevant campaign, is really worth supporting as well. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's really great to be able to meet other people like that as well who are doing really good stuff. Um, Absolutely. So. And I got in contact with you and, um, when I, you know, came across who you were and what you were doing and, you know, a couple of days later I see a selfie on Instagram with Harrison and yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. I love this community. We wrap our arms around everybody. And, you know, Harrison and Jared Grice are both very good friends of this podcast and have shared their stories. And we have the links to support Your Reference Ain't Relevant um, in the link tree and in the show notes of this episode. So you can all go on and support that as well. And that's in an effort to remove um, or change the wording around how impactful the character references on convicted child sex offenders are. So uh, they're doing that in New South Wales at the moment and are hoping to make it national um, as well. So I've actually gone through the process myself of requesting the character references in my case. So I'm in the enthralled in a freedom of information request, <laughs> which is a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Um, but because it's a with my personal case, it's a long time ago. But what I didn't actually know was when you request information like that through Freedom of Information, um, even though it, the case was essentially mine, it was yeah. you know my case against him. Um, I can't access that information easily. So when I've gone to the Freedom of Information in in the state of Victoria, they have to contact the person who gave the character reference and ask their permission if they can send the documents to me. They have to contact the offender and ask if it's okay if I receive this information. It's all weighed up by a solicitor, basically. The the Freedom of Information process isn't just a a document jockey who's just going to share things willy-nilly. They have to go through a whole legal process and they weigh up the benefits and cost and all of that of, but they have to ask. And I didn't know that that would happen, but, yeah, I've just given the approval to ask. Goodness gracious, yeah. It's interesting. There's there's yeah. not there's so many barriers for victims um, to even receive their own bloody information, but all good work. And um, it's these changes that are led by people like yourself, by people like Harrison and Jared that are, going to change the way that any future people will go through the legal process, hopefully for the better. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. I'm confident that we will get better outcomes. We definitely will because, you know, I've said this so many times in this podcast and it, it sounds a bit grim, but I mean it in the nicest way possible. Most offenders have more than one victim and, and that's the same in your case. And when we think about that, there are so many more of us than there are of them. And when we think about our collective feet on the ground and the collective people who are outraged by this, there are more of us than there are of them. And all we have to do is stand together and band together and we'll get it done. Yeah, well said, well said. Beautiful. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and and not only for sharing your story, but talking through what you have. I think it's it's been really impactful and I hope that we can support you through making the changes and I hope to to connect with you again and um, whether that be to talk about signatures or to talk about, you know, positive outcomes that have been made. Um, it's been really, really lovely to chat to, with you about such a shit topic, but, um, yeah, it's been great. Oh, thank, thanks for having, having me. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to come on and it's, and it's good for me to have an opportunity to talk sort of so broadly Um, and it's at length so thank you my pleasure and thank you everybody for listening to reclaim me thank you for listening to this episode if you do need help or support please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you 
Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.